So we were pleased to have Ed Gant come here as a speaker, and he was speaking on uh, agentic sexuality, how the latter to saint perspective can rescue humanity from the tyranny of the abstract. And we are very pleased to have him. Unfortunately, uh, he has COVID, and and he is he's vaccinated, so he's, he, he feels he's going to get over it pretty soon. But in his place, we have, reading his paper, we have Dr. Richard Williams. And Richard Williams received his Ph.D. in Psychological Sciences from Purdue University. He is a professor of psychology in the Department of Counseling, Psychology, and Special Education at Brigham Young University. He was the founding director of the Wheatley Institute at BYU. His scholarly interests include the philosophical, conceptual, and moral foundations of psychological theories and the relationship between traditional and postmodern perspectives. And there's a, there's a lot more that he's there's, he's widely published that he's done a lot. So we're very pleased to have Dr. Richard Williams reading the paper from Dr. Ed Gant. So with that, Dr. Williams. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. I have attended these conferences in the past, but. It's been a number of years, so I'm happy to uh, be back. Um, I should point out that it's not that Ed just threw a dart and it hit me, and so I'm reading the paper. Um, This is a paper. He and I wrote a longer piece, which is coming out in issues on on religion and psychotherapy uh, on this same topic, and so this is the condensed form of that. And uh, I uh, do want to express uh, my hopes that Ed's uh, recovery is uh, quick and complete. I know most of us are mourning or worried about a family member somewhere who's struggling with the same thing. So uh, he and others have my prayers, and I'm sure... There's a rich prayer life going on out there. Um, The topic of agentic sexuality is a difficult one. Um, I think that to say that sexuality is agentic seems fairly straightforward. But if at the end of the paper you still have the same view of agency that you did going in and the same view of sexuality that you did going in, it fails. Those can only be brought together if we don't think of agency as we have for centuries and if we don't think of sexuality as we had for centuries. And so our perspective is meant to be Christian, restoration-based, and thorough. So we're presenting it here Uh, for your discussion. Um, The longer paper also includes a couple of students who uh, participated with us, uh, Maddie Christensen and Jacob Tubbs, and uh, they gave us a uh, a needed perspective and a a good uh, boost. Simply stated, the analysis I'll offer here today to establish that human sexuality is really best understood as embodied agentic action 
That's the goal. As such, human action is neither reducible to underlying biological or natural causes and abstract forces, nor to the effects of powerful invisible abstractions. And we'll talk about those. Either of which would turn sexuality in a type into a type of natural event rather than a meaningful human action. However, it's important to also state that this claim does not entail the somewhat common but conceptually flawed notion that sexuality as human agentic action is simply a matter of sexual behaviors, desires, orientations, or identities being freely chosen from among alternatives by an independent, autonomous free will. That is to say, in order to support the claim that sexuality is agentic, human agency must be understood in a different, or I think better, way than it traditionally has been. One that does not simply reflect a view of agency as radical choice. Thus, a major purpose of this presentation is to offer a new account of human agency, an account that can make sense of human sexuality without succumbing to the temptations of either reductionism or radical free choice. We need to get rid of both of those. A major conclusion of this analysis is that the term sexuality does not really designate any real category or object. That is, it has no referent. Sexuality is an abstraction, a general idea about all sorts of thoughts, observations, experiences related to sex. And ideas as thoughts, observations, and experiences have their being only in the acts of thinking, observing, and experiencing. Such acts are real, but but they produce ideas, and generalized idea is an abstraction. It's not a category of real things. Thus, the term sexuality has, in fact, no real reference no condition or entity, no thing to which it directly or adequately corresponds. Rather, sexuality is more fruitfully understood as a description of what people do, say, or think, and not as the name of something that people possess or something that is operating within people or upon people and causing them to do what they do or to desire how and what they desire. Such a view clearly stands in fairly stark contrast to the prevailing consensus in the professional and academic areas of contemporary social science, as well as the larger social and moral context of Western, uh, modern Western self-understanding. Indeed, the current intellectual fashion is to offer explanation of virtually all human actions, including sexual activity, in terms of the operation of powerful abstractions, invisible to the eye and discernible only by those whose minds have been educated to see them and understand the operation of such invisible forces, as well as understand Uh, as well as to understand themselves and others in those terms. For example, 
Lee Miller asserts in a popular introductory text on psychology of human sexuality, quote, as a starting point, it is useful to acknowledge that every single sexual act is the result of several powerful forces acting upon one or more persons. Whether sex occurs at any given moment depends on which forces are strongest at the time. End quote. It is the uh, it is the appointed task of the educated and critically discerning psychologist to detect and identify these powerful, though subtle and abstract, causal forces in order to fully comprehend and explain the variety of human sexual desires, acts, and relationships that make up what we refer to as sexuality. To be clear, there is nothing wrong in principle with using an abstract term like sexuality in common conversation. Effective communication in general would be very difficult without the use of such abstractions. One could use, one could, uh, use that word in any number of casual conversations and everyone would know what was being talked about. However, sexuality becomes more than a merely conventional or descriptive term when it is applied as the name of a metaphysical category of things or said of supposedly real things or real types of persons or forces that push and pull persons to do or feel certain things whether from the inside or, or the outside or some combination of both. When used this way, sexuality begins to take on an existence of its own that is independent of conversation or Lord descriptive narratives about agentic human action, becoming instead a label for types of actions or as the lines of analysis proceed, the name of a real source or cause of those actions. This sort of reification can be seen in the context of sexuality in reference to things and categories as homosexuality, heterosexuality, bisexuality, pansexuality. In other words, such terms cease to be mere description, descriptors of certain sexual acts in which a person might engage and instead become the explanation or reasons why the person engages in those acts. Additionally, once this initial reification of sexuality has um, has occurred, other abstractions are often quickly drawn into the explanatory vocabulary to name more presumably real things and causes that are part of sexuality. For example, sexual needs, sexual orientation, sexual identity, and so on. In conversation informed by contemporary thought in the social sciences, sexuality as a term is almost always, and usually without reservation, transformed from being simply a useful abstraction for describing a broad category of human, of human actions into a, th a name for real things either types of persons or some invisible abstract things with causal efficacy in sexually relevant human actions. The crucial question about this sort of rhetorical drift, 
where descriptions of actions morph into real things rather than remaining mere descriptions of actions, is whether a category mistake has been made. In other words, by what new discovery or influx of knowledge do these reified descriptors, sexuality, orientation, and so forth, show us that they're more than simply innocent descriptions of what persons do, but are in fact really the names of actual categories to which persons can be assigned, or categories of real, powerful, invisible causes of what people do relative to sex, and how and why they do it. In short, the question is, have we mistaken abstract for human and vice versa? One of the salient effects of the reification of abstractions is the loss of genuine human agency from our understanding and explanations of our humanity and our actions. The absence of any compelling sense or or understanding of agency in human affairs results in the loss of meaning, purpose, and the possibility of genuine, proactive, self-initiated change. This, in turn, profoundly affects our understanding and explanations of sexual activity of all sorts, that is, behavioral, cognitive, emotive, moral, etc. With these things in mind, I want to first focus on how reifying abstractions obviates genuine human agency and how our current understanding of human agency is inadequate as an explanation of human agency as it is actually lived and experienced. I'll also explore some of the consequences of this inadequate uh, thinking, both about agency and about sexuality. For our understanding of our humanity, I'll then introduce an alternative understanding of human agency that overcomes the current problems and discuss the benefits of this alternative view of sexuality as agentic. The technical language of the social sciences and clinical practice the language is the language of reified abstractions, has captured the imagination of most of us in the modern Western world. And thus the general discourse about human sexuality is a discourse suffused with reified abstractions. One result of this is that people actually do tend to think of themselves especially when it comes to thinking about sex, sexual behavior, and gender, as being caused or determined or at least heavily pressed upon by any number of causes and forces that are outside their control or which are not readily subject to their agency. This occult abstract, these occult abstract causes are typically given great deference in conversations, both professional and casual ones. It seems odd to have such confidence in and afford such deference to the supposed importance and power of abstract things when the only real evidence of their existence, in, indeed the only form in which they can, uh, abs- they can confidently be said to exist, is that they have been thought of. If we were to assign a real metaphysical status to them, it must surely only be that they exist as thoughts produced and expressed by human beings. 
And very importantly, the only way they can continue to exist is by continuing to be thought. Even if one were to object to this conclusion by suggesting that things like identities or orientations can also be felt, that is, they can be experienced as feelings, as subjective emotional states, feelings are always feelings about something or toward something. Otherwise, they're merely bodily, diffuse, inarticulate, and have no effect above the level of general perturbance. Thus, the only way a feeling can have an effect on a person is for it to find expression, ultimately as a thought, an idea. As I'll show, this very, this very ontology simply confirms that these supposed abstract causes as, as the thoughts and ideas of intentional beings are in reality themselves meaningful agentic acts. What this means is, in the modern world, we have come to think of ourselves largely as having an identity, including a sexual identity, instead of just being the person that our embodied embodiment, our history, our kinship, and our experience belong to. However, claiming to have an identity is redundant and provides us no new understanding or insight. It simply renames as an abstract thing that which is already the totality of our experience and agentic living. Such an abstract reified identity seems from this reifying perspective to be in some way responsible for things about us which we must either accept or which we must try, sometimes with desperation, to control. Doing so, however, results in a highly unnatural split of our personhood such that we become both an identity and a person apart from the identity, someone who must either fulfill or oppose that identity for reasons about which the two parts may strongly disagree. Rather, I would urge, uh, I would argue that human being, as human beings, we do not have any such thing as an identity. Certainly not one that stands apart from ourselves as we live, think, believe, relate, and become. Thus, our identity, so to speak, is largely a matter of our own making, not hovering somewhere waiting to be discovered, realized, embraced, accepted, and obeyed. It is rather a description of what we do, think, and feel, rather than an occult and independent abstract causal force or identity somehow working within us or outside or from somewhere or other. In summary, then, our larger psychologically informed secular culture inclines us to think we are subject to powerful abstractions such as sexual drives, desires, attractions, identities, and orientations that have to be dealt with controlled, accepted, or embraced, or indulged, even celebrated. This understanding is often so pervasive and unquestioned that it may even occur, that it may not even occur to us that such things, in fact, do not exist, except as invented descriptions of what we, as individual human agents, actively think, feel, and do. The category mistake mentioned above is that we put all these sexual things in a category of real things, ex- um, exercising some power over us, 
when they are in truth, just terms that describe how we are actively engaging as human agents in a world of which sexuality, relevant thoughts, actions, and feelings are a part. In a word, all these things are really descriptions of stuff we do. They are not things that do stuff to us. If one prefers a reifying explanation reliant upon the invocation of abstractions, then sexuality really is a thing with causal power and causal efficacy, although one's preference does not make it so. Such a view keeps sexuality confined to the natural world, including both powerful and visible abstractions and physical matter where moral quality or value cannot really be attached, except in a purely pragmatic sense, since natural phenomena just are, and thus are morally inert. As Truman, whom we'll hear from later, observes, sexual activity in this naturalistic sense is not in and of itself moral or immoral. It is just an activity. To the modern post-Freud, post-Nietzsche mind, those who argue that sex acts have intrinsic moral content are merely expressing irrational aesthetic preferences rooted in cultural conditioning of simple prejudice. Sex becomes morally significant only as it is an expression of the self, of a personal identity, and so any moral discussion of sex acts or their consequences must be set against that background, end quote. In contrast, in contrast, if sexuality is understood agentically, that is, as what we do, as embodied moral agents together with others, then sexuality, including imagining, feeling, desiring, and many other ways of being in which people take up and give themselves over to various real possibilities, is inherently moral, relevant, and meaningful. Chiefly because people are relevant and meaningful. Meaningfulness as as a key defining attribute of humanity and our spiritual heritage is both the content of and the context for sexuality, as it is for the human for all human acting. This understanding of sexuality locates it meaningfully within the realm of our humanity to which morality can be legitimately attached, as it can to all agentic acts. The traditionally presumed advantage of metaphysical reification in understanding and explaining sexuality is that it keeps human sexuality safely within the amoral universe of naturally caused activities and thereby preserves not only the positivist intellectual project of establishing an objective, value-neutral account of behavior, but also any number of conceptual, compatible, structuralist intellectual projects. The agentic explanation, on the other hand, brings sexuality as fundamental agentic activity into the realm of intentionality, as understood in the older and more formal phenomenological sense of the term articulated by such thinkers thinkers as Brentano and Husserl. Intentionality in this sense refers to the fact 
that all meaningful human consciousness and therefore all human action is intrinsically endowed with a telos, that that toward which it tends or aims. Indeed, the word intentionality derives from the Latin verb intend, meaning to aim or point at or extend or stretch. Thus, intentionality allows for moral significance in the broadest sense of that term. Genuine human acts, including sexual acts as intentional acts, are thus a matter of what agents do with reason and purpose in the context of and for the sake of a meaningful life world of social relationships and moral possibilities. So embodiment as a rescue from abstractions. It is vital to appreciate that intentionality is not a simple cognitive or mental phenomenon, but rather a profoundly physical as well as social and moral phenomenon. As embodied beings, we are always already situated simultaneously, enmeshed in social, physical, temporal, and spiritual fields of various relationships and meaning. However, just as human action is recognized as always occurring in the context of an inescapable and ever-present biological reality, embodiment is also not, excuse me, not in any meaningful way separable from the social, moral, cultural, and historical contexts in which all our acts are inherently embedded. The lived body is a fundamental dimension of our existence as the sorts of human beings we are. The the presuppositional horizon within which we act and live. Embodiment is, in this way, the grounding feature of the world of moral agents and thus the most salient context within which agents exercise the creative freedom to be and to do. This view stands in sharp contrast to the prevailing but philosophically naive perspectives currently on on offer from any one of large number of biological reductive perspectives. A perspective grounded in embodiment as envisioned here suggests that the body is more than a mechanical object governed by natural forces defined by abstract conditions or causal tendencies and driven by reflexive responses. In contrast, it is the the traditional view of the body as mechanical, viewing uh, viewing human agency through the lens of embodiment, allows us to see the lived body, the whole embodied being as both site and source of our intentional engagement with, Uh, and by the world in all of its projects, in all of our projects, a necessary ground for purposive, meaningful action and relationships. While it is in and through the body that we are able to to be intimately familiar with and engage the world and others, we are capable of desiring and act, excuse, and, and are capable of desiring and acting at all, this does not mean that it, be, it is because of the body that we have a world in the first place. Nor is it the case that the body is the sole origin of our desires or actions or identities. 
As Matthews notes, <clears throat> except in certain contexts, we experience <clears throat> living human bodies, <clears throat> our own and those of other people, not as bits of machinery, but as expressions of a human person and his or her mode of being in the world. Indeed, on this view, sexuality is not, is not best thought of as some sort of abstract causal force or condition, a category of something we possess or to which we belong, but rather an active, purposive, meaningful, unfolding mode of our being in the world with others. In other words, the body is best understood as a mode of being, not the material source of being. As such, it should be thought of as an affordance, that is, enabling, an enabling context rather than a cause. Such a view provides a sophisticated alternative to the reduction, to the reductive and emergent explanations, uh, explanatory strategies over the la that have advanced over the last century or so. All of these attribute direct causal roles to the material body in the production and understanding of meaningful human phenomena, including sexuality. Understanding human beings as embodied agents thus provides a way of taking both the body and agency seriously, as certainly we must do if we hope to understand human sexuality while avoiding the pitfalls of naive and incoherent attempts to get meaning out of meat. It also serves as a deterrent to making all sorts of facile category mistakes of various sorts, such as the common notion that sexual attraction and feelings of love are really just the result of oxytocin and dopamine activity in the limbic system. Embodiment is particularly important in experiencing and understanding sexuality, not only because sexuality generally involves the body and bodily affordances, but more importantly because sex is instantiated in the physical body. For males, in addition to primary and secondary sex characteristic, every cell in the body is also male. For females, in addition to primary and secondary sex characteristics, every cell in the body is female. Thus, bi this biological fact seems to be immutable. And in discussions of sexuality, sexual orientation, or sexual fluidity, biological sex is not one of those factors that is mutable. A significant part of the muddle in academic and lay discussions of human sexuality arises from making fine, mostly rhetorical distinctions between sex and gender, and the introduction into discussions of various terms referring to various things with very different ontological proven prov provenances. Unfortunately, this serves to keep the conversations fluid and imprecise allowing for any number of claims that might make conversational or grammatical sense, but which are logically and or ontologically incoherent. One might state, for example, that gender is fluid and in so doing cite differences in gender roles and gender identities, and then also propose that sex is a part of gender, so that sex comes to be seen as similarly fluid, in spite of what the biological facts on the ground, so to speak, happen to be. In these types of discussions, careful definitions, 
conceptual consistency and ontological clarity are usually not points of principal emphasis. One important aspect of embodiment then is that is that the body witnesses even at the cellular level to the immutability of biological sex and therefore biological gender. Embodiment and sexual dimorphism also brings us face to face with sexual complementarity and gives tangible form to the natural connection of sexuality to fecundity and to the concrete otherness of others, including often not yet present others. Even granting that biological processes of development and maturation do occasionally not work out perfectly, a person's sexual or one could say gendered embodiment at the level of the body itself and not merely its outward appearance is what is and is so in its concrete givenness. To the extent that embodiment undergirds identity, then, one's sexual or sexed identity is likewise given. That is to say, in the mater- at the material level, our identity is immutable as well. For LDS Christians and most Christians, this truth can be stated even more directly as it has been in the family a proclamation to the world. All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved son or daughter of heavenly parents, and as such, each has a divine nature and identity. Gender is an essential characteristic of individual premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose, end quote. Furthermore, as this statement declares, there is, some, there is more to the concept of identity than just what the body provides, that is, sex or gender. Western culture is quite taken with the notion that we can of ourselves make of ourselves whatever we desire, and this has been uh, this has been in effect at least since the rise of Renaissance humanism in the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. The brute facts of the material world and its resistance to us, however, impose strong pragmatic limitations on this self creativity. Nonetheless, we do have significant power and significant leeway to create our non-biological selves. At the heart of this self-creation, the construction of an identity, is the human will and its capacity to imagine and to create and to recreate. Though we can certainly construe the circumstances of our embodiment in a variety of ways and apply to it a variety of meanings, our embodiment is not itself fully complicit in such creativity. It does not inexorably bend to the dictates of our will, but rather constrains and resists the inventiveness of our imagination. Thus, it makes more sense to talk about something like sexual identity along the lines of preferences and orientations as being mutable, that is, subject to creative construction through agentic action. Indeed, we have argued that such things likely are mutable, able to be uh, constituted and reconstituted, done and undone and redone, precisely because they have their being, their essence, only in agentic acts. Even in the context, or perhaps especially in the context of embodiment, 
with all possibilities and affordances that embodiment presents to us, along with inherent givenness. Thus we can hope that mutability might bring about harmony with the given rather than conflict with the immutable. It is in this context, that is, while biological sex or gender is fixed and immutable, sexual identities and such things are constructions which only agentic human beings can create. Thus we, turn, thus, we turn attention to the case for genuine agentic sexuality. There is no aspect of our essential humanity that is more dynamic, that is mutable, than our agency. The dynamism does not attach to whether or not we are agents, but rather to how agency is deployed and what it might produce. Agentic action in, is in its essence fluid and open-ended. To be human is to be an agent, and to be an agent is to be creative, to be intimately enmeshed in a world of possibility, purpose, and meaning. Agency is the essence of our mutability, our being able to change and do otherwise at any time. The lived world for us exists primarily as possibility and constraint, permeated by meaning and moral significance. Agentic beings are fluid and mutable, though though most assuredly not infinitely so, particularly in light of the constraints of embodiment and the material world that resists us. Furthermore, we simply cannot bring material things into existence by thinking them or speaking them into existence. We cannot conjure, in other words. However, the fact that we are ontologically agentic beings is not itself mutable or subject to change. However, fluidity of action and mutability in the face of possibility and the flow of human events is endemic to all human agents and definitive of agency itself. This is not to say, however, that agency, properly understood, ends up in a chaos of random reasons and impulses that would obviate any predictability or understanding of us and our behavior. On the contrary, the life world in which human agency unfold is not a chaotic one. Chaos, that is, random, unconstrained change, precludes meaningful reasons and thereby destroys meaningful agency. Sense can be made of people's agentic actions and their life world. However, if sense is to be made of a person's agentic world, it must be made from the perspective of the particular agent, him or herself, rather than from some extrapolated theoretical or abstract perspective which in the contemporary social science discipline is generally based on assumptions developed and applied generally and emphasizing hypothetical constructs, causal abstractions, natural forces, or the mechanical activities of meat and chemical. In the agentic view of life, a constant and purposeful doing, undoing, and redoing in the sense of always being open-ended In short, we might say that for human beings, it's agency all the time and all the way down. 
The reality of agent, agentic action unfolds within the very hermeneutic circularity or spiral trajectory of life. In other words, human agency intimately entails that what is done is done, but can always be undone or redone differently for any or all of a potentially very large number of reasons. And those reasons can also always be taken up anew or put down again, taken on or modified as we give ourselves over to or withhold ourselves from any of them, either fully or by degrees. Human agency is perhaps best understood as a constant and endless procession of persons taking on and giving themselves over to meaningful possibilities as we construe and construct our lives and ourselves within the possibility-rich or sometimes possibility-poor world in which we find ourselves. Constantly living and acting with others and among things. It is for this reason that our agentic action in the realm of matters, uh, in the realm of sexual matters, is as in all other human actions, is contextual and fully participatory, involving others, both real and imagined. Further, it is in this light that agentic action in the realm of sexual matters is inescapably moral, always tethered on the givenness of life while simultaneously being telic, and oriented to the rich possibilities that givenness always affords in a rational moral agent. Sexuality as agentic meaning-making is inherently dynamic, as dynamic as any other kind of meaningful human action, consisting of taking up ideas and meanings and possibilities and giving ourselves over to those meanings and possibilities or at other times, leaving certain meanings and possibilities behind in a constant flow of living, deciding, acting, reacting, doing, undoing, and doing over. What is apparent in any lived world, however, is that abstract metaphysical realities, in contrast to human meaning and purpose, are not fluid or immutable. For example, agency... Excuse me, for example, agency and possibility are inherent in a proposition and in the lived reality it represents, such as Smith is a golfer or Smith is an English speaker. Such statements can only be understood as something that a person, uh, excuse me, that a person, Smith, understood as an agent is doing. That is, Smith is a golfer. Because she golfs or is golfing, she is not necessarily bound to be a golfer indefinitely, nor is she metaphysically or necessarily a golfer. She gives up golf. If she gives up golfing, then she ceases to be a golfer. The world of human sexual understanding and activity, as opposed to the world of the metaphysically given, is inherently an agentic world of meaning and possibility in which we actively and creatively immerse ourselves. What this means is that things such as sexual orientation, preference, attraction, and identity, and activity uh, are actually described descriptions 
of what a person is doing, not statements of metaphysical types or abstractions or categorical identification of what a person, in fact, just is. In other words, all of these aspects of sexuality, since they are things we're doing, are things that can be undone, taken up anew, or put down. As agentic acts, they are the sort of things, that is, possibilities, to which we can give ourselves over, or reserve ourselves from, or take up in some, uh, or take up as we take up other possibilities, including the possibilities of desire itself. This is not to say that such agentic becoming otherwise is easy, as habits of thinking and acting are notoriously stubborn. It is to say, though, that there are no metaphysical or lawful constraints on change and no powerful causal abstractions exercising invisible compulsive force and constraints on us. That aspect of our sexual nature, which genuinely is metaphysically given and thus not agentic or mutable, that is our gendered embodiment, provides the givenness and a range of affordances and opportunities consistent with that reality within which agentic sexuality can be meaningfully and purposefully expressed. Most opposition to the idea that sexuality is agentic, as I'm proposing here, will likely be rooted in a particular understanding of human agency that has prevailed for centuries. This is the construal of agency as traditional libertarian free will or radical choice. In this construed construal, agency is manifested most clearly and fundamentally in the capacity for making autonomous or free choices. <clears throat> choices made based on un, excuse me, unfettered will, the unfettered will of the agent and the agent's capacity to resist external influence. It is important to note here that the belief in invisible, magical, powerful abstractions is one of the sources of influence that are traditionally held to impact individual free choices or attempts to choose freely. If, however, the powerful abstractions developed in this, dis- in this discourse are of our culture really do not exist or have any real causal power in themselves, then their influence can lie only in our giving them credence and allowing them to become the grounds for our free will choices. But a choice made by an agent who gives credence to something that is not true or is not the case is in fact not really free in the way freedom is usually understood. For example, if Smith, as an adult chose always to sleep on the couch in his home because he believed sincerely that there was a monster under the full-size bed in his, in, his room, in his house and the monster was too large to fit under the couch. Therefore, the couch was a, fa- a safer place to sleep. Would we be inclined to grant that Smith's choice is really a free choice? even though he made the free choice of his own free will. 
Would we not, in such a case, be more inclined to consider that Smith is not really exercising his agency because he is living in a false world, bestowing power in the form of influence on a false narrative, that is, on an entity that does not in fact exist in Smith's own narrative? Similarly, cultural narratives can obviate freedom and negate human agency on at least two levels. First, by creating powerful narratives about ourselves and our world in which invisible powerful abstractions exist and control many aspects of our lives, including the choices we make based on reasons that reflect our belief in the reality of those forces and thus our own impotence in the face of such forces working in our lives. The second level on which freedom can be negated has to do with whether the various reasons for which we might make our free choices actually reflect truth, that is, the world as it really is, including the truth of our own being in the world. The common view of agency as described above as exercising one's freedom to choose in a situation despite influence to the contrary does not constitute human agency as we really live it out in almost all the situations in which we find ourselves in the course of daily life. The common view tends to emphasize particular specifiable choice points and the exercise of agency in a particular situation by weighing alternatives and deliberating on possible choices while resisting some influences and opting in the direction of other possible influences. The problem is that in actually living our lives, we almost never do anything like this. A moment's reflection should be enough to convince us that there really are very few instances in any given day where we really go through that sort of detached, deliberative process of making a free choice that the common view assumes. For the most part, we go about living, and we're just too busy doing what we want to do and what needs to be done. Of course, we might assume that true agency is brought out only on special occasions, but this line of thinking misses the ubiquity and the essence of our genuine agency. Our real human agency is not something we employ just on special, sometimes momentous occasions of careful calculative deliberation. Rather, human agency is the substance of our being in the world. It is the very stuff of which human life is composed. And as such, our agency cannot be disentangled from our very living and acting as the sort of beings we are. To understand how this uh, to understand how this experience and exercise of agency, we have to focus not on deliberations and choice-making, but on the hundreds or even thousands of things, ideas, feelings, and beliefs, aspirations, worries, traditions, relationships, purposes, and context of embodiment that forms the meaningful world of which we are a part. This paper is too long to finish. Let me summarize. Sexuality, we argue, is not something that happens to us. It's something we do by means of the body in response to the body. And in order to understand the agentic view of agency, we have to reject that agency consists in the making of choices and resisting 
certain reasons and opting for others. A, we almost never do it. And B, think of how you decided what to major on in college, whom to marry, whether to buy that car, etc., etc., etc. What did you do? You made a thousand small decisions. You gave yourself to this and to that. You didn't give yourself to this and to that. Well, that's what agency is. We do that all the time. We give ourselves to it. We take it up. We put it down over and over and over. And if that seems overpowering, then that's what Jean-Paul Sartre noted years and years ago. But that's what we're here for. So what we're trying to do is liberate our humanity from the power of natural forces and abstractions. And that will disentangle the naughty problem that sexuality has been for a very long time. I'm sorry to have to quit so abruptly. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that summary you gave, actually. That, was, that, was, that really helped, helped on that. So I have one question here. So, so, so if I'm a therapist or a bishop of someone who is gay but wants to live church standards, how do I help them to reify their identity? What specific things do I encourage them to do? Uh, is this on? Yes, it is. I, I think, I mean, this is going to sound harder than it is, but we don't tend to teach each other or help each other to understand just how agentic we are. Um, People who take this position on sexuality or homosexuality usually get the rap of saying, you're accusing, you're making people responsible. What could be more liberating, more optimistic, more freeing than the idea that this is something you're doing For any one of a number of reasons, none of which is going to get you sent to the lower kingdoms. But you can always do otherwise. What you need is a sufficient reason, a different life world, a different understanding of yourself. And so bishops, I think, have to reveal to them, look, you you are a person in making. Let's talk about... The experience of this, what we need is more what we call in, in, the, in scholarly circles a, um, a phenomenology of decision making or a phenomenology of, of identity forming. That is, what's the experience? What make, why do you think this way? What, what is, what's the content of what you're thinking? And what can be laid aside? Are there other opportunities? Help them explore the experience itself. The phenomenology of being who who I say I am. And what does it mean? In what way am I that? Um, Martin Heidegger, who had his own problems, but not every way we use being or to be is the same way. I can say I am... A psychologist, I am a father, I am a Latter-day Saint, I am hungry, I am sorry. And that doesn't mean the same thing in any of those things. So in what way am I this or that or the other thing?
And what if I quit doing this, that, and the other thing? In what sense am I still... What if I quit playing golf? Am I still a golfer? Of course not. So I, I, I think we got to change our way of thinking and help people understand the universe is open-ended. I drive my daughter crazy about that. She wants there to be an, a closed-ended universe so that if she does everything right, she's got it. And I have to tell no, I'm sorry. The last act is not written. The universe is open-ended. <laughs> so we really have to change the way we talk about it. Actually. Yes. You know, what, you know, when we do, I know we talk about agency in our Sunday school classes and such, but we just really have to have to emphasize that. Yeah. You have your agency. You can make choices. Yeah. We talk about it as freedom of choice. Yeah. But even a two-year-old will say, well, why did you choose that? And the whole problem of choosing collapses. <laughs> the whole freedom of uh, agency is free as choosing falls apart. Really appreciate you coming in. Thank you. Um, you get you get a brownie that would have gone to Ed, but you get it because you uh, you gave the presentation. So so it's right. He, he's too sick to eat it. I'll make good use. That's of it. right. You, you do the sacrifice for yes, him. Yes, I will. I will. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.